Get, get the technology running here. Okay, it's running. Good. Great. Um, you know, if you look up there, you'll see an interesting picture. Uh, not really much to look at. And uh, this picture means a lot to me because um, right before we had the chance in 1992 to plant a church in Kiev, Ukraine, uh, Tammy and I got to visit the city a number of times and just kind of go around and see the sites. And everyone said we had to see this. And, that, and what is that? Well, it's the foundation of the first church building that was ever built in the Ukraine made out of stone. Any other one, it dates back to the late 10th century. So that foundation, and that's part of its original, part of its not original. It's sort of a commemorative thing at this moment. But what's interesting is there was a church building there a thousand years ago. Now many of us are familiar with the, the, the story in Acts 17 where Paul was preaching to the uh, Athenians and he actually had seen in the city a, uh, a altar to the unknown God. And it's always nice when you're preaching if you can find something that everyone can relate to. Well, one of the questions that people kept asking us because the, a form of Christianity had been in Kiev already for a thousand years, uh, Russian Orthodoxy. Uh, it began as Greek Orthodoxy and then became Russian Orthodoxy about 500 years uh, through the story. Uh, but people are saying, why are you here? And, uh, you know, we said, well, we're here to start a church. And the first question was, well, where are you going to build it? Because the moment we said the word church, people thought of a building. They thought of some kind of physical presence. And it was interesting because I was thinking, how can I explain to the people in Kiev why we are there? Well, then I was out walking, and this was before my first sermon. And I saw this foundation of a building. And it's the first church building ever built in Kiev. And it was called the Church of the Tithe because Vladimir, who was the reigning prince at the time, gave one-tenth of his riches to build this church. So a tithe is a tenth. He gave a tenth of everything so he could build this building. And what's interesting, though, that I gave you a little more history on your, your handout, but this building's been destroyed over time and then rebuilt. And every time it's been restored or rebuilt, it's been rededicated, and it's been called the Church of the Tenth. So it's kept this name, and no other church in Kiev is called the Church of the Tenth, because the foundation is the original. And by the foundation being the original, then the building becomes automatically, no matter what you want it to be, it's the Church of the Tenth. Well, this really answered, I think, well, any questions someone might have. So why have you come to Kiev? What, what are you preaching? What are you teaching? Because what we were teaching is simply this. There is a church that Jesus began. There's a church that's based on the teaching of the Bible. And the foundation isn't man-made. The foundation is from God. And the foundation is, in fact, the Scriptures. Let's just go to Ephesians chapter 2 and we'll read this verse together. It says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. 
You know, sadly for many people in, in our day and age, the word church does mean a building. Uh, the word synagogue, familiar with this word synagogue? Well, that's a Jewish church building in people's mind. But the, the word synagogue simply means a gathering. And it became over time, where the people gathered, it took the name of, 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 the, of sort of what was going on in that meeting. Paul says that the church is like a building. Because the church is built on a foundation. And so, we, what I want us to do this morning, is, or sorry, this afternoon, is just think a little bit about this idea. That the church of the New Testament is very specific. That God has a plan for it. And the great news is, it involves us. The great news, the church is an invitation to us to be connected to God in a very special way. In fact, it even says here that God wants to live in us. And that's pretty exciting. Now, He wants to live in us individually, but He wants to live in us as a group. To really become an assembly where He lives. We'll go to the next slide. The word church has two senses. You know, in the Greek language, the word church means called out. And so, church means assembly. Whenever you are part of an assembly in the Greek world, that was a church by definition. And so even in the New Testament, sometimes people assemble, but it wasn't to worship God. For example, in Acts 19, the people assembled in the Colosseum because they actually were wanting to put Paul to death. They wanted to to persecute him. That was an assembly, but that's not a church you and I would really want to go to. It was an assembly... But what was the reason? Well, it was actually an assembly to persecute Christians. You know, I try to avoid those assemblies if I can. But God has an idea for the church. And that is to assemble people. And the church in the New Testament, this word is used in two ways. One way in a very universal, amazing way. Let's just look at this over in Hebrews chapter 12. So turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 12. Verses 22 to 24. Hebrews 12, verses 22 to 24. He says, You have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You know, we've actually gathered today in a church building. This is the Villa Road Methodist Church building. And so, you know, this building was built for a very specific purpose. Uh, Sadly, sort of what's happened to this building is sort uh, sort of characteristic of what's been happening in society in general. This building is no longer owned by the Methodist Church. It's owned by the neighboring grammar school. And it's actually been turned into, during the week, their music hall. So downstairs is a bunch of studios. This is the main assembly where they have presentations and stuff. And uh, simply because the church that used to meet here, the actual Methodist congregation, uh, which just takes up a few rows sold them the building on the condition they could meet here as long as they wanted to into the future. Well, that's an advantage to us because they use it in the morning and we use it in the afternoon. But it's a beautiful building. 
But the sad thing is, it was no longer being used enough. And so, you know, the church isn't just a building. The church is an assembly of people for whom God has a purpose. But, you know, we gather here today and there's something invisible going on. God is here among us. You know, can we, can we see that? You know, not in the tangible kind of way I can see Bola from Manchester right here in front of me. You know, Bola's got a body, he's got a smile, he's, he's a physical presence. You know, God is here, and He's here in us, but it's a spiritual aspect. And there's something even more amazing, if we could just realize this, as we were singing today, and thanks to the music team, great, great job, but as we're singing together, angels are singing with us. God is joyful with us. You know, we're not, we're not part of simply something we can see. We're part of something more than that. And so what the Hebrew writer is saying is, do you realize where you've come to? Yes, you've come to a group of people who meet on Sunday afternoon at 4 p.m. But you're actually part of an eternal assembly as well. Where God is present and the angels are worshiping. And the very center of all of this is Christ. I appreciate so much. Already we've had a fair bit of testimony today in in our service. Just hearing about how God is working. And it's so great how God also gives us peace that Roy was talking about. You know, God can give us things the world cannot give us. And He's called us out to be a church and There's another meaning of the word church, and that's sort of the local, visible gathering. And so in the New Testament, when you read the word church, and it's applying to God's people, sometimes it's this global, universal, big picture. Other times it's simply talking about a group of people like you and me, gathering in a certain place to worship, to love each other, to be pleasing to God. Let's look in Acts 2.41. You know, Acts 2 is considered the birthday of the church. It's when the church began. And the church will now go into eternity. And we are able to enter the church through repentance and baptism. And through baptism, we die to ourselves. We're raised to a new life. It's an amazing story. But the church is even bigger than that because all that were faithful before the church ever came, they have died. They will also be raised, and then they will live in this universal church. The church will be all the faithful through all time. And it's an amazing picture. But what does it mean to be part of the local church? After Peter preached his gospel message, it reads this in verse 41. Those who accepted Peter's message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And then listen to the life of the church. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. Who would have liked to have been there? You know, it's a pretty awesome picture, isn't it? 
And one of the keys was the gospel got preached and they responded to it. And the next step is they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And breaking of bread has a double meaning. It also means the communion that we just did together. A little bit of bread, a little bit of the the grape juice or fruit of the vine. But also it meant that they shared meals together. It was an awesome fellowship. And they enjoyed being with each other. You know, we enjoy that in our local church. God has allowed us and done, brought us together for a purpose. To have a church just like this. Now the church in Jerusalem had some circumstances that were different. There were a hundred thousand or more visitors in Jerusalem on this day of Pentecost. Some of the people that became Christians had only brought enough food or money for a week. And then they were supposed to be going home. But they liked it so much, they stayed. And we see for the, for the first few chapters of the book of Acts, the church in Jerusalem was growing and nobody was leaving. Everybody was staying. Well, God would intervene and they would actually start to leave at some point. But you know what it said in the verse we read in the beginning? The church is built on, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone. You know, in ancient times, the cornerstone was the, really the most important stone of the building. Because the cornerstone would set the direction for the building itself. Once they had determined where the cornerstone would go, its level and everything about it, the rest of the building would be put together based on the stone itself. It was the, the marker. And that's exactly who Jesus is for us. Jesus shows us what life in the church is really supposed to be. He shows us what discipleship is all about. So he set the first stone in place. And then it says that the apostles and prophets are kind of built around him. You know, let's go over to Ephesians chapter 3 and just read what Paul said further about the apostles and prophets. So this is, would be just as if we were continuing on from the first scripture. We finished in Ephesians 2 verse 22. Let's pick this up in In Ephesians 3 verse 1. He says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly. In reading this then, you'll you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit of God's ho- Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. You know, what he's saying is, something changed after Jesus went back up to heaven, And the Holy Spirit was poured out and the apostles and prophets began to preach and to teach. Something changed because a foundation was laid upon which the church can be built in every generation. You know, coming back to the original story about the the church in Kiev. So why were we in Kiev? So that we could actually start a church not based on human tradition or a church based sort of on cultural norms but a church that would just be based on the Scripture. That we'd actually teach the Bible and call people together. Based on what? Coming together because of their shared 
faith in Jesus Christ. And the promise of eternal life. And so we become temporarily part of this earthly church. But our goal is being part of this invisible, eternal church. And that can only happen through the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, it's interesting when we look at the New Testament. It was actually written by identifiably four apostles and then four prophets. So you've got four apostles. uh, You've got Paul, Peter, John, Matthew. And you've got four prophets, Mark, Luke, James, Jude. And actually, there's probably a fifth, the writer of Hebrews. We don't actually know who that is. Uh, for in the early letters, many of them didn't have an address who was, who was written by. But from the earliest times in the church, Hebrews was always part of their scriptures. And the person obviously knew uh, uh, Timothy and some other people that he mentions. But we have this Bible written in the first century, and it still exists today. You are holding the foundation of the church doctrinally in your hands. Isn't that amazing? And so a group of people anywhere on earth can simply become part of the church of Christ by building their lives together on this foundation. By believing in the truth of it and simply holding to it. And so it's it's amazing because the same church that began 2,000 years ago can, in a sense, locally begin anywhere by simply taking the word, the truth, and building our lives on it. But you know, if you go over to the book of 1 Corinthians, you can see even this was a challenge in the first century. It was a challenge to be unified. And they had physical prophets and physical apostles. But sometimes I think actually that is more, more of a challenge than if they weren't there and we just have the word. Because the word of God is perfect and true. But you know, the challenge about us in our human flesh is that we aren't perfect in our actions. Through the blood of Christ, we're forgiven, we're considered perfect before Him. But there's still sin in our lives that He's continually cleansing us from. Well, look what happens in 1 Corinthians. And what's interesting is, now at 1 Corinthians, the, the time when this is being written, the New Testament was just starting to be written down. This is one of the first letters. And so there was trouble with division in the church. And look what Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brother, son from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. And what I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. You know, it is interesting that Paul himself brings up first. Some of you say you follow me. And he's going, that's not good. We shouldn't be following men. We should be following Christ. You know, he goes on to say in in chapter 3, he goes in verse 1, Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you're you're not yet ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You're still worldly. For since there's jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, 
Are you not mere men? What after all is Apollos? What is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. You know, division, disunity is so human, isn't it? You know, I I can only imagine what the married people here were thinking about on the day of their marriage. But they weren't thinking about disunity, they were thinking about unity. You know, they weren't thinking, boy, this is going to be rough. Boy, there's going to be moments where there will be conflict. No, they're thinking about, this is awesome. I'm being united with my best friend. Amen. And you know what? Don't lose that idealism, any of you over here. Okay? Don't lose that. That's the right idealism. But the reality of our, our human nature, our flesh, is it's not always going to go so smoothly. There's going to be some issues. And see, what we need is a foundation upon which to build our relationships. And that foundation must be God's Word. We must be able to agree. If the Bible says it, it's true. And that should be enough. But you know, it wasn't enough in Corinth. They were focusing on people. And when you focus on people, it causes division. Even when you focus on Paul or Apollos. Apollos was a teacher. Paul was an apostle. Focusing on them and not seeing beyond that to the truth of the scripture. Actually brought division in the church. You know, read a little further in chapter 4. I mean, this problem was big enough. Paul spent basically three and a half chapters talking about it. But look what he says in verse 6. He says, Now, brothers, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, Do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not take pride in one man over against another. For who makes you different from anyone else? And what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? You know, what a guideline for Christian unity. If we didn't go beyond what was written, there wouldn't be division. Division happens when we go beyond what's written. And let me just tell you, there's a lot of stuff that's been written. We can go to the next slide. These are some great books. I actually have six of them in my library. And if you want some reading about churches and church growth and and how to do church, these are great books. But you know, if you were just to Google books about how to build the church, the funniest thing in on Amazon, you'll get all these books, but the Bible doesn't come up. (laughs) I mean, that, that sounds kind of strange, right? But you'll get all these books. Now, there's some great books here. Some great ideas. Absolutely things worthy to put into practice. But how do you actually evaluate a book like that? Well, you have to actually get your Bible out too and say, Okay, how does this fit? And if someone's come up with a great way of putting a scripture into practice, and you can see that it resonates with the spirit of the Bible and and the truth, you go, Hey, that's a great idea. Let's try that. And the Bible does give us lots of freedom. You know, how many scriptures do we actually have about what a church service looks like in the New Testament? You'd be surprised how few they are. I mean, the the number is, it's probably, you could read them all in less than six minutes. All the passages describing what public meeting together looked like. Wow, that's pretty intense, isn't it? 
Now we do know that the first century church borrowed a lot from the first century synagogue. And because that's where the church came from, from its Jewish background. And so we see a lot of repetition and assumption. But the truth is, there's also a lot of freedom. I really like that Roy sung us part of his communion thought today. You know, I hadn't seen that for a while. It wasn't the first time, but and I hope it's not the last. But you know, it, it's kind of fun to see, well, that's a little different. Good for you, Roy. Good, you know, like, like it's not wrong to try new things. But we, what we need to come back to is the scripture. And there's great books here, I think really helpful books. But the truth is, the scripture's got to be what we base our unity on. If we based our unity on any one of those books, we would have a problem. Because what if I don't like that book? What if one of those books I don't like, but someone else really likes it? Oh, we need to do it this way. You see where the problems begin? When it says, do not go beyond what is written, it didn't mean those books. It meant the Bible. And sadly, if we Google, how do we build the church? The Bible should be the thing that comes up first. The Bible is the foundation of the church. And that's why we were given the scripture. You know, there's another thing that Paul said back in our first scripture, Ephesians 2. He said that the church is God building a temple in which he can live. And I want us just to look at that for a moment over in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. It says here, As you come to Him, the living stone, that is Jesus, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to Him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, an an old name for the mountain where Jerusalem was, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in Him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, and a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But here's another description of the church. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Isn't that a great message? What a transformation. God is building a temple in which he wants to live. And the church was never meant to be the building. The church was meant to be the people. And when the people come together, that's the church. And God is worshipped in the church. It says here that we're we're priests. And it's interesting, priests always offer something. A priest makes some kind of sacrifice. But the New Testament says that just not a few of us are priests, but everyone is a priest. And what does that mean? 
Well, only you can offer yourself to God. Now, it would be awesome if I could offer Roger, right? You know, God, it's so great. I'm so grateful for everything you've done. I'd like to offer Roger in service to you. You know, what a gift, yeah. You know, I can, I can say that, but I, I can't offer Roger. I don't have that power or that right. There's only one person in the room I can offer back to God. And that's myself. You know, each one of, our, of us are priests with a unique sacrifice to make to God. Now, this isn't the sacrifice for your salvation. Jesus did that. That's done. That was a sin offering. But the Old Testament teaches us there's fellowship offerings, there's thank offerings. In other words, we're offering back ourselves to God, not to be saved, but to express our gratefulness. And just the fellowship we have. You know, when we sacrifice, who are we like? Who sacrificed for us? Jesus. We participate in His sufferings when we sacrifice. And so we've been built together. There's two scriptures right here. Hebrews 13, 15, 16. Let's read this. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. The fruit of lips that confess His name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. You might realize this. No one can make you praise God. No one can make you praise Him. That's only something you yourself can do. And to do good to others, no one can make you... You can't be, Your arm can't be twisted behind your back to do good to others. That's going to come out of your heart. And then also to share with others. But these are sacrifices that please, us to get, please God. Look in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices... Holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. You know, in some of the sacrifices of the Old Testament, living animals were sacrificed. And as you can imagine, they didn't go there willingly. You know, you put an animal up on a rock, a sacrificial rock, and you're going to you're going to kill it. The animal's not happy. You know, however you were holding it down and getting it ready for that, it's going to be squirming. It's going to this living sacrifice is going to take an act of will, right? Now, if you're if you're offering some kind of plant sacrifice, some kind of fruits of the land or something, obviously they weren't running anywhere. Pouring out some oil, that's not going to go anywhere. But the living sacrifice. That was more, a little more difficult. I appreciate, he says, offer your body as a living sacrifice. Because when I'm called to sacrifice, my body goes, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What, what's going on here? You know, if I give up this, what's going to happen for me? That's what my flesh is telling me. But look how the verse begins. In view of God's mercy to us. See, the real motivation to give back to God is just seeing how much He's given to us. In view of His mercy, we need to sacrifice too. Now, His mercy is what saves us. But we please God through our sacrifice. 
And see, that's what he's going on to say. Your spiritual act of worship, it's offering yourself to God. Don't be worldly in your thinking. Then you'll know, you'll test and approve what God's will is. You know, don't you want to know God's will in your life? You know, not just like in a few little details of the scripture, but in the day-to-day things. But God shows us His will as we do these two things. As we offer ourselves, and as we get rid of worldly thinking, the best way to do that is with the scriptures coming into our, our thinking. That renews our minds. Listening to God's Spirit. These things work in us. But what happens is, this change, this transformation helps us know what is God's will. One of the biggest decisions you make, I know I keep coming back to marriage, but who you marry, that's a big one. That's a big decision. Don't, don't rush into it, okay? But you've got to consider, okay, what, what's really going on here? What, what am I being asked to give up in this? Sometimes you're just thinking, oh, it's what I'm going to get. But see, the beginning of the church was the sacrifice of Jesus. The beginning of great relationships with each other is the giving up of ourselves to each other. This is the kind of love that Jesus showed us that we would lay down our lives for each other. Now just to close, look over in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm actually going to add, uh, it says verse 10, but I'm going to actually go to verse 9 to start with. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 9. Again, it's continuing on another passage that we've been looking at already about who is Paul and who is Apollos. And Paul began by using this sort of farming analogy. And he talked about he was the one that planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. But then he's kind of shifting his sort of parable here, his image. And in verse 9 he says, For we're God's fellow workers, you are God's field. And then he talks about God's building. And so now he moves into verse 10, another discussion about building. Not exactly identical to what he was saying in Ephesians 2, but very similar. Look what he says starting in verse 10. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is in Christ Jesus, If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is. Because the day, which is judgment day, will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames." You know, when you escape through the flames, you're not carrying your favorite stuff with you. You know, when the house is on fire and it's, and it's burning, you're, you just get out yourself. Okay, that, that's this image. that he's, It's one escaping through the flames. But what's he saying? A foundation's been laid, and it has been laid. We're holding it in our hands. It's the scripture of God. And in the church, this is a doctrinal foundation, that first analogy... But now we're talking about the actual spiritual foundation of the church. It is Christ and only Christ. Our lives are built on Christ. And the church must be built on Christ. But it's interesting because our work will be tested. 
And he says there's different building materials. And they really fall into two, two categories. Those that burn easily and those that don't burn so easily. You know, um, the UK has very different building traditions than Canada does. And I think a lot of it can be attributed to the Great Fire of London. Which is kind of like wood burns. And it burns really, really well. So let's go with brick. Okay? Let's get away from wood and let's, let's go with brick. You know? And, but I live in Canada and the truth is we build mostly everything out of wood. Because wood insulates better. Like it, it, it's an easier... Keeps you warmer and it's cold in Canada. Okay? But the truth is this, this idea. Why, why build out of brick? Because wood burns. You know, we're building our Christian lives on the truth of God's Word. We're building them on the example and on the life of Jesus. But we do make choices what we're actually willing to put into that building. And sometimes we don't use the things that are most precious to us. We use the things that are more expendable. And see, when we look at giving, even financially to the church, do we see that as a thing we do first or as a thing we do last? Do we give God of the first fruits and think, okay, this is what I want to give? Or sort of like at the end, well, if I have enough left over, that's what I'll give. That's just an example. But what about our time, our energy, our hearts? You know, he says, this wood, hay, and straw, it's going to be consumed. And in the the New Testament... Uh, straw, this word similar to the word that's used for chaff, that's when, when, you, when you take the husk off grain, you're left with this little bit of, of, uh, of skin of the grain, and it just blows away in the wind, it's nothing. And it'll light up like, like a torch. And hay and wood, these things burn. But gold, silver, and costly st- stones, you know, I don't know anyone who built their house out of gold. But let me tell you, if I built my house out of gold, silver, and costly stones, and there were a fire, I'd go back. I'd actually go back. Because guess what? The gold's going to be there somewhere. The silver's going to be there somewhere. And the precious stones, actually, sadly, some precious stones wouldn't survive, but some would. So you're going to go back and you're going to find what's valuable. The challenge for us is to put what's most valuable... What we have that's most valuable into the church, into each other, to give it back to Christ and make the sacrifice. You know, gold is is used in 1 Peter 1, it's compared to faith. That just like gold is refined by fire, our faith is refined by fire. Uh, and, And silver is the same word used in the parable of the talents, where God gives us opportunities and abilities. And are we going to use them for Him? And precious stones, we've just read about that in this passage in 1 Peter. Jesus is a precious stone. We are living stones. Those are our relationships with each other. If you think about faith and our our abilities and our opportunities and our relationships, that's a pretty good summary of what really matters to us, right? And when we give these things to God, He is pleased. You know, time is a test uh, just like fire. If you leave a nail outside, just your typical iron nail outside for five years, and then go find it, it looks like it's been thrown into a fire, even though it wasn't in a fire. 
it rusts. But you take that same nail and throw it into a campfire and let the fire burn in just an hour, you pull it out, now it looks like the five-year-old nail. See, time itself is a test, isn't it? Time is a test. And really, that's why in the scripture, persevering to the end is so important. Persevering to the end. Because it doesn't really matter what's in the past. What matters is right now with God. And so we've been called to be God's fellow builders. The foundation's been laid. We don't need to create anything more. We don't need to add to it. It's been laid. The the vision is there. We saw it in Acts chapter 2. A church that loves, loves each other, meet together, worship together, care for each other. This is God's plan. But the foundation must be the truth. And that's up to each one of us. Each one of us needs to be careful how we build and where we build. Not to be distracted by the things of this world, but to really see it the way that God does. To build this church with Him. What an amazing thing. You know, uh, anyone like building stuff, making things with their hands? You know, we got, we got some crafty people here. Yeah? Um, you know, the truth is, what if you could make something that lasted forever? You know, the truth is, God's invited us to be His co-workers in the building of the church. And there's certain things He's relying on us to do. Like love each other. To have faith. To encourage each other. These, these are the things God wants us to do in each other's lives. And when we do that based on truth, the church is built up. Let's pray together as the worship team comes to take their place. Our Father and God, we are so grateful for your many, many blessings. Father, we are, we are so enriched just by having your word. Father, uh, thank you that it's so easy for any of us to just get a hold of the truth. Uh, Google may not bring it up on the first search, but Father, we know where the truth is. It is in the scriptures. And I really pray, Father, that each one of us will be devoted to building the way you want us to build. That we won't use straw or wood or hay, but we will really use what is precious to us. That we will use the gold and silver and the precious stones that we have. Father, I pray that our faith can be refined through the fire and can really bring honor and glory to you. Father, I pray that the talents and abilities you give us, that we will offer them back to you and to the service of the church and do everything we can to really build up the body of Christ. And Father, I pray for our relationships, these precious stones that we have. I pray that we won't give up on each other in prayer. I pray that we'll seek to encourage each other as long as it's called today. The Father will really be in each other's lives in a powerful way. But Father, the most important thing is to be with you and to be with your Son. Thank you that you want to build a gathering of people where you live, where you are glorified. And I pray, Father, that we can do everything according to your will, that we can please you in how we live. Father, we love you and we thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.